0: Hello and welcome to the Miko Bits show and I'm your host Miko Bits. Today, I have Evan from Disco. We're going to be talking about decentralized identity. So this is a pretty exciting topic. Obviously, the entire concept of Web3 is based on the idea that we have to build fundamentally new infrastructure to support the internet, and that the Web2 paradigm has actually reached the end of its useful life. So, really, we're now at this frontier where we're really looking into exciting new infrastructure to support the idea of identity. So, without further ado, I welcome Evan to the MikoVitz Show. Welcome,
1: Miko. Thank you so much for having me. It's another beautiful day in the metaverse, and I'm really excited for us to chat about all of my favorite things.
0: Yeah, wonderful. So uh, I guess the first question, as usual, is something like, what is it that Disco solves? What is it that you're what's what's the problem that you're solving?
1: We are building Disco so that you never have to fill out a form again. At Disco, like our name suggests, we believe that you are the multifaceted center of the party, just as you are. And you should reflect your data, your identity, your preferences to the world, however you decide. The way that you experience your day is not limited to a single app or a single physical space, even. You move from room to room, from browser to app to television, to spending time with friends in real life to your phone. And when you move from one space to another, very little information can come with you. So that often means that the very first experience you have, whether that's RSVPing for a birthday party, starting a new, uh, signing up for a new email, beginning a new job, is filling out a form. Now, this takes up quite a lot of time. In fact, for Americans, it's about 11 and a half billion hours a year um, spent, at, you know, writing in form fields, often repeating information that we've already shared before. So in addition to creating opportunities to write down the wrong thing for user error, opportunities for sets of this data to become out of date, no longer relevant or useful to you, or even sets of this information to fall into the wrong hands so it can misrepresent you, you know, all of these challenges really stem from the fact that we've got super high switching costs. When I move from one app to another, most of the data that I create gets stuck there in a silo and can't come with me, which is why when I go to app number two, I have to begin again like it's my first day on the Internet. In the crypto space, we've started to solve some of this portability challenge um, with tokens, so we now can enjoy the experience of using a Web3 crypto wallet such as MetaMask to connect to one application and then another, uh, where in the second, third, fourth, subsequent applications, we're able to view the same token holdings that we did in our first. We're able to uh, engage in similar actions in different app environments while having the state of that data, our financial public token data, maintained and carried with us from one space to another. So with Disco, our web app, uh, we call it your data backpack. So your ability to use the very same keys that you use on chain to carry around data written about you in the same way that you use those uh, those keys in that wallet to carry around tokens that are mapped to your ID that you have control over. So what this means is that your keys have a new superpower. Uh, currently, um, you know, crypto keys that we know and love are able to manage, send, and, and kind of interact with different tokens on chain. And now we can use those very same keys to write pieces of information, send them to other people, to receive and use pieces of information written about ourselves in the form of credentials. So we can think of credentials in our data backpack, kind of like the plastic ID cards in our physical, our physical purses or bags that we might use as proofs of membership to different spaces or clubs, um, proofs of preferences, you know, driver's licenses, health ID cards, those sorts of things. The data that describes us, but is not us by itself. Um, So the beauty of Disco's web app is that it allows us to similarly carry around pieces of information, these credentials written about us that are secured by keys that can come from blockchains, but do not themselves live on chain. This means that the data that we carry around in our backpacks doesn't involve any gas fees, can be immediately legible to or relied upon by anybody who interacts with it, regardless of what blockchain they're using or if they're even connected to the internet at all. Um, And so we're able to broaden the range of what we can do with our keys broaden the set of data primitives that we can handle uh, together in the Web3 space from just tokens to off-chain credential assets, data assets as well. Um, And so that allows us to increase the kind of coordination games we can play together to introduce this idea of provenance or origin um, to more than just finance, um, but rather to all aspects of our lives where we, we enjoy different kinds of expression
0: yeah i you know it's well elegantly stated. I think the thing that uh you've done that I really appreciate is unlike many kind of infrastructure providers, you've really kind of surfaced to the level of the user of the end user right like what the value is and the benefit is, so but you've kind of couched it in the context of kind of not having to do repeated data entry, right? But I think one of the things that happens when there's a shift in a paradigm is that the old paradigm kind of tries to cling to relevancy using various Band-Aids, right? So for example, right now, the browser is sort of being used to sort of memorize personal information and that there is a lot of kind of browser-based automated form filling and this type of behavior that sort of sort of allowing the old paradigm to sort of, cling to legitimacy, right? So I guess to me, the thing that I think is true is for sure what you're saying makes a ton of sense, right? From an architectural perspective. But I guess the thing that's really complicated from a user perspective is, is that users are kind of getting some of that value out of kind of some of this browser for automated form filling tech. And so I think it, what it does is it reduces the, the urgency of the need to, to dump all that stuff.
1: I, yeah, I definitely agree, and I think, you know, when we contemplate more than just form filling in the traditional sense, like an Eventbrite or Google Form or, you know, yeah, birthday party RSVP form, there's certainly a lot of technology that we have that is attuned to moving data in, you know, fairly siloed environments, one Google Form to another. However, where this gets really interesting is that in you know, a universe of in AI enabled technologies, capabilities, where the production of new information is virtually virtually limitless, the um the the use utility or value of what's being emitted is only as relevant to us as it is personalized to our preferences. So where I see an exciting opportunity for us to to you know use the, the premise of the form fill. But to have it be more embodied, more expressive, is the ability to attune preferences, attune a digital experience to the data that you bring with you. And and so this, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, actually jumps across the boundaries of the browser. So, you know, the preferences that you have inside of one particular profile from one set of uh, of tools to another, um, you know, there's definitely great value in lowering the switching costs there. But being able to extend the profile of yourself to not be tied to simple underlying protocols, not be tied to a single window through which you access the Internet, but rather to move with you from one device to another, from one space to another. That's the horizon line that I'm really excited about us moving forward. Yeah, or sorry, go ahead, go ahead.
0: So, so to kind of clarify this from an audience perspective, like one idea that came to my mind is really the idea that, like, especially with the availability of privacy protection, you actually gain some very interesting opportunities, right? Which is you're interacting with a service, right? And it's possible that if the service knew some more about you, that the service could be better, right? That the service could make you a special offer that it's aware of or that it's able to give you based on new information that it has, right? But like the idea that you're describing is, is that, you know, the basic information of where's your address and where is your name and this kind of thing, what is your birthday, you know, can be stored in like a browser. Obviously it gets less and less secure when you start to store social security numbers. You know, there's even a special browser-based facility for storing credit cards, which I think is partially secure. It's probably okay-ish. But I would say that like, It definitely gets really interesting. So to me, like, would it be reasonable to assume that the value of such infrastructure could be expressed above and beyond what's available today in the fact that you can arrive in an environment and the environment can actually, without having kind of the ability to steal your identity and data, can offer you kind of a lot of unique uh, things and and, and that it can do so in a way that preserves your privacy. So am I fishing in the right pond?
1: Absolutely. And I I really appreciate you articulating in in this way because there is this this sort of funny membrane of disclosure between um, an individual and a service or application experience that they're interacting with. The experience that you enjoy with an app or service can only be as personalized as the set of data that that app or service has access to about you sometimes you know I've heard friends call this the known universe problem the known universe of data about you informs the extent to which your person your experience can be personalized for yeah. you and so what we what you are able to do is shortcut the known universe problem by bringing information about yourself to the party. Yeah. And control what that expression looks like, what facets of yourself you want to share, um, and you know what set of you know potential potentially multiple different identifiers you want to reflect in a given interaction. Um, and then on you know on the other side of that, the extent to which a service can offer a personalized experience is informed by how many moving parts that service has, how, how modular is it, how modifiable can it be based on information about an individual user who's engaging with it. So we have this interesting give and take where the more information that you provide, the more personalized your experience can be. Um, but uh, the more you know, information that your application or service takes in, the more onboarding is required to get to that point of great personalization. So we can save some labor uh, on the search process and we can shortcut this process of discovery by bringing data to the table, by being able to engage with it right away as opposed to intermediating that process with a big form fill or um, with the need to extrapolate data from multiple different sources that may or may not be accurate or relevant to you. Yeah.
0: And I think the thing that becomes so interesting as we get the development of further AI and, you know, especially around topics like inference, right, is that There are really interesting dynamics, especially around privacy, right? So if you look at emerging technologies like zero-knowledge proofs, right, you can actually have – because when you talk about exchange, that's a really big deal, right? Because in a sense, for example, let's say you go to a place, right? Uh, You go to a bar, right? And somebody asks you a question that might be a personal question, right? Like maybe it's the bartenders asking you like, oh, you know. So let's say they say something like – can you give me your social security number right so it's sort of like instantly you're like, well why are you asking right like that that feels bad right and you know and I can't even think of a single reason why a bartender would even need any such thing right so it's you're instantly like you're kind of disturbed you're this is not great right this is a bad situation right whereas the thing that becomes kind of interesting is is that if you're able to create kind of like an inference space, the thing that's really interesting can be that like, Uh, you know, uh, the services can make offers to you in exchange, right? So service could be like, based on what I know already, it's possible x, you know, and if you want to disclose x to us, then you know, and you can either opt to allow us to store that so that next time you come back, it'll be set up this way for you automatically. Or you could just allow us to make you a one time offer and then throw away that information. You know, I mean, obviously, one of the problems with mathematical proofs is that there isn't a proof of deletion so they can't prove that they deleted the information which is problematic but like there are definitely kind of cool ways to create intermediaries data intermediaries whose sort of sole purpose is to kind of enable offers to be made you know so to me like i really feel like right now data is the principal web2 model is basically data theft is the basic model right so essentially when we see these like trillion dollar kind of Web2 era, you know, Metcalf's law companies like Facebook, like their primary concept is steal user data, you know, and then monetize, right? Whereas I think in this case, the idea of exchange is really nice, right? Because that's, that's like, so in a sense, it's sort of like, what do I get right like it's sort of like i'm gonna tell you x and you're gonna give me y right and it's sort of like i get to decide if i if i like that if i don't like it then it's like no I, like yeah i'm not gonna tell you that and that's it right so i feel that feels good
1: that's the spiciest take <laughs> on web2 business models i've heard in a minute <laughs> data theft as a service <laughs> well you know I, uh, I hear you. I hear you there. You know, at DISCO, we look at the act of creating data as an act of dignified labor, that data is a work product in many contexts. And where it gets interesting is in the environments where it is treated as a business asset versus work product owned by its subject and creator. Um, and so uh, so kind of what, what you're discussing it, it really makes me think about, you know, sort of down to, the, down to the studs of the human experience that we're having, you know, here and, and trying to figure out how we interact with these different protocols. Um, the origin of the information that's most useful to us is often, you know, the, the spaces where we've been recently, right? The half-life of data, maybe forever, but it's really great when it's fresh. Um, the trust brokers that have signed it, places where we have gotten it. And the extent to which that piece of data can inform the choices that we make or how we might, um, how we might contend with such a, such a space of negotiation, space of, of commercial offering. Um, so when we think about, okay, where, what are these sort of fresh pieces of data, these pieces of information about us that, that inform our decisions in an outsized way that can be additionally valuable to brokering those interactions and some of those pieces of information, like we don't even necessarily need to broker in order to provide them to different apps and services to make our experience better things like your preference for your, you know, for light or dark mode, your preference for your primary language, the need for accessibility mode, all of these preferences can be, and and are currently contended largely in a a browser type environment or in like a manual form at the app layer. Um, and so for basic accessibility, basic discoverability and identification, um, one way that we can create a more accommodating environment for these exchanges is to have that environment itself be able to respond and engage with an individual in a way that makes sense for them even if it's you know if it's something as simple as their preference for you know the color that that text shows up on their screen
0: so one of the things i am aware of is that you know you, you're you're actively transacting you're actively onboarding users so i'd love to kind of get some initial numbers and i'd love to understand kind of how's it going from a kind of quantitative perspective, which is like, who's using, what are they doing with it? Like, how's it going?
1: For sure. So um, we opened up our public data beta a few months ago, um, which is really exciting after a, a long period of research and trial and error with different decentralized technologies. Um, and of course, as you know, you know that building that process of assembling Lego blocks together that are hypothetically composable um, is always an, an interesting one when we've got folks on the other side ready to engage. But what's been fantastic to see is the growth of our data backpackers and those who are excited to experiment with credentials. So now we've got a bit over twelve thousand backpackers. The platform supports over a hundred, I think, in thirty thousand credentials at latest count, um, based on a, based on a few different activations. Although we're we're changing our observability to no longer count certain types of credentials, such as those earned in onboarding and in testing, etc. Um, so what this means for us is that we've got a vibrant community of folks that are engaging with each other using credentials, leveraging the keys that they use on chain in a new way.
0: Tell me about what the most popular applications are or what are the most popular kinds of uses?
1: So most folks come to DISCO because they are explicitly picking up a specific credential. They've received a credential from a community application service, and they want to get started doing some credential-related activity. So they're already on a clear journey with a clear outcome, and DISCO is just a step along that way. Um, what we have seen that's been a little bit surprising to me that I didn't really expect is that um, so in onboarding, when you get started with Disco, one of the first things that we do is invite you to uh, create and send a credential. So it's a gas free action, basically allows you to choose among some rectangular JPEGs and send one to another individual. Um, The most popular one that we have right now to answer your question is the GM credential. Um, So GMs are just like good morning, little greeting, kind of like a Facebook style poke in the native language and protocol of Web3. Um, but we realized that as people were getting used to disco, they were sort of having fun sending GM credentials back and forth, that some people were so enthused about it that they started taking screenshots of their GMs in their data backpack and posting them on Twitter to Flex, which is a pretty analog, <laughs> analog way to do that. So to make the process a little bit easier, we put together the GM leaderboard that allows you to see where you stack up against other users in terms of the number of GMs that you have received and made public. We now have streaks so you can see how many days in a row you've been engaging um, and uh, and generally have identified that GMs, because they feel you know, low consequence, low stress. They allow people to bring a joyful bend toward interacting with this new data primitive and this new method of engagement using their keys. And so that feels a, less, a little bit less stressful, a little less arduous com- or complex. And so um, people feel much more comfortable uh, starting off with GMs and then escalating to other different kinds of credentials once they've established a good feeling about what it means to click these buttons and use their keys in this new way. Yeah,
0: that's exciting. So uh, what I'd love to do is dip in a bit to the future. So really, I think one of the things that's always been interesting to contemplate is sort of the future of the internet you know, and I think, you know, you mentioned the metaverse early on. So I'm, I'm really curious kind of what your perspectives are on kind of what is the metaverse and how do you see the concept of identity playing into this?
1: At Disco, we believe the metaverse is your ability to show up in any digital or physical environment and enjoy a personalized experience based on the parts of yourself that you choose to share. So our metaverse is not hanging out inside of someone else's website with an iPad strapped to your face. Our metaverse is not limited to one specific protocol or brand, and it certainly does not take place inside of the confines of a screen. Um, Rather, most of the data, most of the experience that makes us us does not happen in a digital form. It gets, you know, captured and expressed in those different ways. But at Disco, we believe that the metaverse is already happening. We are inside of it. It is around us. And it is up to us to all work together and improve the experience of what it means to move fluidly from one app into the next, one Zoom call into another. Um, when we think about, you know, what the relationship of identity is to this metaverse, it, it's really the question of how do you introduce yourself? How do you show up to these experiences? How do you share more about yourself with others who you find in these environments? And so identity is the critical unlock to a metaverse that is not interrupted by sign-up forms everywhere we go, but rather has the ability to you know, to, to be controlled in a very nuanced and evolving fashion, just as organic as our experience of human beings currently is. So if I can express different parts of myself, not just my financial information, which is mostly what we can do on chain right now, but if I can express things like the time zone that I live in, my, um, you know, food allergies, the colors that I prefer, whether I'm a cat or dog person, what I like in my coffee, et cetera, all of these different traits of ourselves, accomplishments, and contributions that inform the way that we spend our time, inform who we like to hang out with, those are the pieces of information that will allow us to, in the metaverse, solve more interesting coordination problems than pooling capital and spending it, rather allowing us to have genuine, authentic human connection and to be served you know, offerings and opportunities from brands and organizations and even content that is tailored to us. Like, imagine, instead of watching regular TV commercials, you watch a series of short films that are all specifically articulated for the audience of one, you know, made for Miko, speaking directly to you and the things that you're looking for and the experiences that, you know, that you prefer. Um, It is is strangely uh, pedestrian that everyone has the same experience of a website today when we all go to visit it. Despite the fact that so much information about ourselves is available, the only customized elements for the most part are what happens on the sidebars in terms of display ad or so display ad content or how the blocks of video or text are ordered. Uh, in front of our faces. Um, But there are so many more ways that we can, you know, we can provide um, personalization and seamless movement from one space to another, if we know who it is that's coming into the room.
0: Yeah, I definitely get that. I mean, if you look at things like uh, enterprise master data management, right, there's really only two, what happens is you have disparate databases, even within a single enterprise, right? And the Problem with disparate data is that you don't have a mechanism through which you can join. You can do this kind of database joining, right? So, like the really the solutions that arose in the enterprise are basically this concept of uh, customer master, right? Which is you, that you basically use an, a user identity as a way to join disparate data tables, right? And then the other one is uh, basically called product master where you basically take the products that your company sells and you kind of use that to join tables, right? So it's really kind of like this really it's really simple because if you think about business, business is sort of supply and demand, right? And so you have a supply chain and a demand chain, right? You have, you know, the stuff that you make and then you have the stuff that people buy, right? And so like, you know, those two sort of things form the kind of foundation of kind of disaggregating or aggregating disaggregated data, right? So so to me, the way you're speaking about the concept of identity is really kind of the fundamental atomic integration of the metaverse, you know, as seen as a disparate set of like applications and, you know, coming from a disparate set of providers, right? So that, so it really, it really means that the metaverse has to kind of be centered around kind of the user you know, and that the user has to kind of have that centrality, right? I think increasingly I've been thinking about kind of user-centric and especially gamer-centric transmedia and this kind of idea of sort of durable uh, representation, you know, and, and I think the idea of a metaverse as being a theme or topic of belonging, right? So I, I really feel like your way of reasoning about the way that identity manifests on this kind of landscape is it's it's very... It's sort of a necessity, and it definitely is going to require this discontinuity of infrastructure. Like, we're going to have to move from what we're doing today, because it, 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 it's, it, isn't, it just doesn't make sense to keep doing what we're doing.
1: The atomic unit of the internet, or the metaverse as we're describing it, the atomic unit of the metaverse is a human being. We've built really beautiful systems of computer coordination tools that assert the atomic unit of an address or a token. But as we've just discussed here, the range of, of, you know, human experience and expression is not, is not limited to the rails where these, you know, this content and these primitives can flow. Um, and actually sort of on the, kind of on the, the topic of, of the rails, kind of bringing it back to the web three moment right now, we're seeing the proliferation of rollups as a service, layer two scaling solutions, block space for sale at every corner of, of, you know, of yeah. the planet. And we're starting to see the aggregation of contextual data about addresses, identity, um, start to become a moat for different rollups. The interoperability, not only of the EVM ecosystem, but even of you know modules of uh, of attestations, becoming a way for one you know one ecosystem to improve the developer experience they offer to those building upon them. Um, so that's also part of why, you know, I'm really excited about the, you know, credentials and verifiable credential standard that we work with at DISCO in that we have, you know, many different types of utterances on-chain and off-chain being expressed right now. There is a logical centralization of data around its subject because that subject is the party that is moving from one space to another, you know, and, and defines the areas in which this data will be required. So we're creating an interesting data availability problem when we've got an individual moving from one app to another, one chain, one space to another. We have a bunch of contextual data or attestations, many of which are bound to a single underlying chain and cannot move as fluidly. So the real estate under which metadata credentials about an individual sits, that is becoming hotly contested. The more opinionated you can make uh, credentials to uh, an underlying protocol and not to a person, the greater moat you can build around that protocol.
0: So... So quick question, right? So if you're reasoning about identity as effectively integration technology, then it seems like unlike traditional infrastructure, there really isn't necessarily a single killer application, but rather a pattern where you would have at least two, if not more, kind of killer applications in the sense that you would want the ability to integrate between like one large application population and another large application population, right? That you would, that would be sort of the highest expression of the initial value would be to be able to have portability. So I guess I'm wondering where you're seeing Kind of the opportunity with respect to kind of having two potentially large populations right because i think you mentioned cross-chain which is obviously one opportunity but like what do you see as being sort of large pool a and large pool b and how you connect those
1: yeah. Where is the, where is the fractured data liquidity right now that is just desperately trying to, to, you know, flow downhill? Um, so really what we're talking about is, you know, a classic three to N sided marketplace cold start problem. Where do we fill the backpacks?
0: Yep. Correct.
1: Um and so what we're seeing with Disco first of all are communities organizations services that want to be able to recognize a set of their a subset of their of their squad of the folks who already have public keys um, but you know for whatever reason do not want to use a token. So we've got sort of the kickoffs these look like membership credentials, these look like proof of participation, proof of speaker, proof of, you know, specific atomic actions. And then the what I think is a little bit more fun, what we've just rolled out actually just this, this past few weeks, um, is what I call the "set it and forget it" credential dispenser, or more technically, we could talk about this as programmatic issuance. So identifying events in app on chain that you know when occur when they occur, whether it's someone clicking a button, submitting a proposal for a DAO, performing an, a, um, a swap. That, that event then triggers a set of keys sitting in the cloud that um, are then permitted to sign a specific schema um, under, under specific terms and send it to the subject. Um, and so what this allows us to do is essentially create the you know, continuous production of credentials in the same way that we can have continuous production of tokens from smart contracts based on events that don't necessarily have to happen on-chain. So the ability uh, to run through your day, living your life like a video game, like the great LARP that it is, um, and have different actions that you do, uh, throw credentials like XP into your backpack that you can then leverage, retrieve, and you know, rely upon later on. That's sort of the, the way forward from a user experience perspective that we think about. Um, in terms of getting this cold start problem begun, we cannot have a mass form filling. Like if we if we think about um, the start of Google Plus back in the day, one of those the most formidable and stressful experiences that people recall is the need to categorize everyone you know in a set of you know cascading importance hierarchies all at once. And so that's definitely not what we want Disco to feel like. Rather, um, as you go through your day performing different actions, whether it's interacting with others on the platform, utilizing Web3 applications that you already know and love, or interacting with brands that you already have a relationship with, being able to strengthen the set of information about your yourself you have by collecting proofs of what you've already done. That's what we're able to do in a very public, visible, and permanent way on-chain. And now with credentials, we're able to, mim- to mimic similar um, verifiability, signature, trust in that information without all of the public publicity and permanence.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely an exciting uh, construct. I think one of the things that this speaks to for me, though, is that when you think about a backpack, I guess one of the things I'm wondering about is sort of like, non-transferability, right? Cuz it it feels like for example, if you're talking about accruing things like off-chain proofs of events or attendances or, you know, any so you so you have a binding, right, that effectively asserts that such an actor, you know, has sort of an authenticated proof of attendance or an, a proof of some activity or achievement or whatever it may be, right? So to me the 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 so the transferability of such a proof is actually problematic, right? Because if you, you know, if you're like, oh, this person X graduated from, you know, MIT and then person Y purchased person X's wallet and now they also graduated from MIT, except they didn't, right? So so I think the transferability becomes an issue. So I'm kinda of wondering how you're reasoning about like how Transferability impacts the concept of identity in terms of things like on chain identity?
1: Definitely. So, Whenever we have a single point of access control for something really desirable, we create a market for that asset, of course. If any single identity expression allows us you know, ultimate access, we create a black market for it. That's why you can spend 500 bucks and get a fake passport, why people steal bored apes or you know, try to get their hands on, on private keys. And so having a one-to-one relationship Um, you know, one address, one proof, um, you know, not transferable. Uh, you're right. We create a strange incentive system there. And that's why I like to think of, of identity less like, um, the information on your driver's license and more like the doors that open at the grocery store when you approach them, regardless of your height or your shape, simply representing the heft of a human is enough to grant access so in if we if we kind of take that parallel, right? If someone's looking at your your driver's license, they're really asking what is your data? What is your name? What street do yep. you live on? Whereas, you know, the the grocery store doors, they're really asking, you know, does your data fit my requirements? Do you have what it takes to be enough of a person according to my definition to allow you to engage? Um and so as, you know, rough and high level of a of a simile as that is. Um I think it's uh Especially now when we have so many different kinds of utterances and attestations, we do not yet have a lot of logically centralized trust registries or places to go to figure out you know, who, who signed what yeah. when. This is where the ability to affiliate together multiple identifiers and to bring together multiple credentials comes in to combat the sort of one credential, one key sale. Um, so with Disco, what we enable you to do is to create these sort of bi-directional handshakes that prove that you are the owner of your data backpack as well as the owner of your Twitter handle, your website, your Discord handle, et cetera. And then additionally, we also allow you to, of course, you know, issue and, and receive credentials. So the more identifiers you put together, the more of your you know, social handles, the more of the other important data that you gather together the higher the cost it's going to be for you to replace all of these different things so it's probably unlikely that you know you would give up multiple different accounts with multiple different critical functions unless the cost of giving that up was you know desirable to to you amenable to you and so here we get into the question of what is the cost of counterfeit So I think that, you know, the simple question of, well, what happens if someone sells their keys, really the answer becomes more of, you know, well, what exactly are the requirements to play in our pool and how can we ensure that the cost of counterfeiting those requirements is unduly high um, so that we disincentivize bad actors and we have, you know, plenty of indicators along the way to let us know if something is going well or not. Um, And so accruing these different identifiers together, having more than just your public key, but also your social accounts, more than just your on-chain actions, but also your off-chain actions, we start to create concentration risk, not in a single address, but rather in the entanglement of our addresses together. One thing that's kind of weird in the crypto space, we touched on this a little bit earlier, is that our abilities with our keys are defined by the wallet applications that we use meaning that there are a whole bunch of things that keys can do that we don't actually have buttons mm. for. Um, this, uh, this means that you know, the way that we assert ourselves with our keys is pretty limited in you know, transacting with, with on-chain tokens. That's why Disco and, and other tools exist to extend those capabilities. Um, when, we, when we use our keys right now, they, they work for both authentication and signing, meaning you know they say, hello, my name is, and they also allow you to act on behalf of that name. So when acting on behalf of that name, representing that name, also represents multiple other names that we go by, that, you know, that also affects the reputation that we are known by in various communities where we express ourselves, then it's not really a question of selling one key and one credential, then it's a question of selling this entanglement of all of these different traits of myself that I've put together that unlock things for me when they're used in harmony. When I'm authenticating, not just with my handle, but with multiple traits of myself, multiple ways to embody, um, I think that that takes us to a much more interesting area of the conversation. Now, of course, at the same time, there's also questions about things like phone on DAO that are improving key liquidity. But we can get into you know the role of other anchors like you know um, uh, device ID and biometrics later.
0: I think the complexity here becomes the extent to which you have kind of a master like a private key type of configuration, right? Because that creates a potentially single point of failure, right? Because the, the issue becomes this, which is, let's say somebody has aggregated all of these things into a single backpack, right? And that they kind of are leaning now into this sort of control over that backpack as proof of identity across like 50 systems, right? So the thing that's really interesting is that that person is very, very, very unlikely to sell that to someone. But if they did lose control of like a root key, then that person would suddenly have 30 ways to authenticate that they're that person. And the person, the original person, you know, once all of that was transferred to a new wallet, or once all of that was kind of like re-passworded or re like that, then that person would actually be locked out, right? So in a sense, you know, in the use case where you have someone, you know, pretending to be you... They may actually have all of the credentials that enable them to assert that they're you and you may not. So that's that's a difficult potential use case.
1: Oh, definitely. And I think there are two aspects of what you described that can, you know, that can tip us off for how we avoid this dystopian nightmare, because that is the exact thing we want to avoid. Right. A single point of failure. This is also why things like non-transferable on-chain tokens can present a bit of a challenge in the same way that, you know, early stages of credentials do where you've got concentration risk around a single address. And currently, you know, for many of those addresses, that's a single address whose keys you cannot rotate. And so binding your life to a set of keys that you can't rotate is a high-risk maneuver, especially when another party might be able to take custody and act on your behalf. And so... I see, you know, a future where and and what we're building toward at Disco is not only being able to relate together your singular data backpack with other social identifiers, but being able to relate multiple public keys together, allowing each to have its own backpack, if you will, and to be able to compel data written about other addresses that you control while leveraging a different public address than the one that it was written about. Now, of course, this takes us probably a year plus from now, because there's quite a lot of infrastructure and capabilities and experience that we need in place to get there. But I think this really highlights the the merits of on versus off-chain data. On-chain data can only take us so far. There are only so many utterances that we are capable of, you know, legally allowed to make publicly on chain, depending on where different enterprises and their customers live. In the United States or here in the state of California, for example, laws like CCPA or COPPA, um, you know, define what you are allowed to do with data about a person who lives here, such as their home address, or information about a child under the age of 13, such as, you know, where they go to school. Um, And so for more complex data sets and conversations, I think this exact point of what we're talking about um, becomes really important. And that's why it's essential for us to moderate that line now, rather than yeeting everything on chain uh, and figuring it out later, because those use cases that are, you know, edge cases right now, they're the ones that can exact a significant amount of risk and harm.
0: Yeah, I think one of the really amazing things about this technology era, right, is that we have technologies like blockchain that really kind of enable tails to wag dogs, right? So in essence, what happens is, is you have hyper adversarial use cases that then impinge into kind of normal human life, right? And the thing that's fascinating is technologies like AI also have this strange quality of essentially amplifying the extremes and crushing the middle, right? And you have technologies like social media that amplify extremes and crush the middle. So we're in an era where like, the extremes are all being amplified, and that all the technology bases and all of the trend lines kind of show that, you know, because what's really happening is, is that like, there are these organisms, like Thermos aquaticus, the underwater volcanic Uh, uh, creature uh, that that are kind of called extremophiles right and the thing that's so fascinating is how society is increasingly being kind of led by sort of extremophiles right and and the thing that's so interesting is how do those edge cases kind of govern what's possible for everyone right so i think we're definitely moving into you know and i think this is the product of our inability to sort of scale trust based on the systems we already have, right? So I think, I think we're, in a really, we're in for a really interesting near future. So I'm just curious about your perspectives on like how we navigate those near future scenarios and how identity kind of becomes sort of the central player in this.
1: You're right. It's a wild time. I actually, I, I love what you're describing in terms of these strange loops and systems of, of extremists. It reminds me of this book that I read when I was in high school called, um, I think it's pronouncing it correctly, it's like Gerdel Escherbach. Gerdel Escherbach. Um, but, uh, basically about, you know, recursion and, and, um, self-referential systems. But what, um, what you're reminding me of is, yeah, this concept of, of the strange loop of the ability to create a negative or positive feedback loop as a result of a self-referential system, um, you know, whether that's in a biological or environment environment or in a computational one. Um, so I think the, you know, the interesting incentives, um, that, you know, that you mentioned the, the sort of odd, the, the odd you know, oppositional flow that we find in Web3 is that because the sale of block space is the fundamental need of the underlying protocol, protocol-centered design, the design of applications and experiences, middleware and storage infrastructure, et cetera, that is catered to or limited by the functions of the protocol focused on solving problems that will improve efficiency of the protocol, right? We have very few modern examples of protocol-centric design at the scale and complexity that we see now in Web3. I am, you know, not going to mention how old I am, but came up in a practice that, you know, used to many, many ages ago used to be called human centered design for hardware and, you know, other, other things. But there, actually, now that I'm looking around this room, I don't think there's anything that I can set eyes on that was not created as the product of pretty straightforward human centered design product process where there's a person with a problem and an object was created to intervene in their life to make that problem suck less. Yes. Um, so here we have this interesting impasse, protocol-centric design coming from the metal up, human-centered design coming from the eyeballs toward the screen, yes. um, and it's kind of like that moment at the end of Econ 101 class, you know, your freshman year, you've just, you've just learned about how all these rational systems work, there are all these mathematical ways to determine outcomes. And when, you know, when we look at a protocol, blockchain protocol, it's very similar, right? Beautiful, trustless, self-executing, you know, perfectly rational system. And then the layer on top of, of that protocol or what happens to us when we leave the classroom at, e- at the end of Econ 101 is we realized, oh, no, these perfect rational systems have to contend with human actors. Yes and their behavior is not perfectly rational, and they are not attuned to only the most capital efficient actions in a system. And so in the same way that an econ student needs to moderate the existence of humanity to figure out how their rational models will exist in the world, so too do the builders of Web3 need to contend with the liminal space in between the rational protocol and the rest of humanity. And, you know, often we call this the app layer, docs, discord, you know, channels and vibes. But it actually, you know, in most industries it is originated in a stern discipline of prioritizing Jira cards in accordance with Gartner data and verified user need. And it is that that opposing direction of product development, product centric versus human centric, that that is um it's it's constantly a source of struggle for me. But also one at disco that I feel very fortunate that we get to, you know, practice every day where we look for look for the humans. Look for the humans in the system. And then originate our next feature set, our next capabilities based on what it is that they need in their day, where the protocol just happens to be one of the stops along the way.
0: Yeah, and this is really kind of a very, very big, expansive note upon which to conclude. I think that, you know, I would definitely enjoy having you back to talk a little bit more about sort of the state of Web3, you know, I'd like to kind of unpack more about things uh, that you're describing more from a philosophical perspective. I think there's definitely a a ton of really rich content that we could uh, push into, uh, you know, especially understanding this kind of concept of identity. Uh, I do want to recommend, so, you know, Gödel, Escher, and Bach, uh, uh, excellent book. There's a subsequent uh, book by Douglas Hofstetter called uh, I Am a Strange Loop, so I think that that was kind of you were alluding oh, to the idea. That. Yes. So the so I highly recommend it. He actually describes consciousness effectively as recursion, so as a, as effectively a mirror. So you know consciousnesses have the ability to self reflect, and that that. Loop inherently is the ge- the genesis, right? So that recursion is the genesis of the experience of consciousness, which is sort of the self-reflective quality, right? So it's a it's a very very interesting treatise, but you know I I think there's definitely like a lot of really fun. Uh, philosophical and intellectual property that we could traverse. So uh, welcome back anytime. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, I definitely recommend the audience follow and check out Evan's work at disco.xyz. And if you have any other sort of socials or jumping off points for people to connect with you, uh, please share them now.
1: Nico, thank you so much. This was an absolute treat. I'm going to follow up your book recommendation with one of my own as well my beloved undergraduate professor who sparked my my enthusiasm for machine learning early on um David Galarnter wrote an incredible book called Tides of Mind that I would highly recommend he's also um the the first teacher that ever brought Hofstadter into a classroom that I was in and so gave great legitimacy to my high school nerd readings but anyway David Galarnter, absolutely wonderful wonderful um wonderful professor um if you're excited about what we are building at Disco we can't wait to welcome you to the dance floor so please drop us a line on twitter at disco xyz my dms are always open at proven authority on twitter you can also find us at disco.xyz and would love to hear all of your metaverse dreams so that we can build them together
0: absolutely Uh, looking forward to uh next steps thank you so much
1: sounds great